You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. ministry has had more far-reaching impact than the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus. I do not think that his influence, I do not think that his effect upon the church and upon the world could ever be overstated, even if I were to stand up here and for 45 minutes just talk about him and his greatness. I don't think it could be overstated. It was the day that changed the world. Think about what would be different if there were no Paul the Apostle. Think of what would be different if Saul of Tarsus had entered Damascus with his intention to persecute the church and he had done so and there had been no Damascus Road experience. What would be different? Just look at your New Testament and tell me what would be different. There would be no book of Romans. We would not have 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We wouldn't have Philemon. We wouldn't have First and Second Thessalonians and all that they tell us about the day of the Lord. We wouldn't have the pastoral epistles, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. What would we have? We would have the Gospels. We wouldn't have the book of Acts because there would have been no Saul of Tarsus to write about. There would have been no rapid expansion of the church for Luke to chronicle. And who even knows if there would have been a Luke without Paul? So there would have been no book of Acts. So we would have the Gospels. We would have the book of Hebrews. We would have James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. That's it. And how bereft we would be of understanding on so many critical issues. What would we know about election if it were not for the Apostle Paul and Romans 9, 10, and 11? What would we know about the sovereignty of God and the purpose of God in salvation and all of human history if it were not for Ephesians 1, 2, and 3? What would we know about the sin of man if it weren't for Romans 1, 2, and 3? What would we know about marriage if it weren't for Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Look how bereft we would be of understanding concerning elders and eldership and pastoral ministry if it weren't for the pastoral epistles. Quite a man with quite an influence, isn't it? Your New Testament would certainly be different. Your understanding of essential doctrine would certainly be different without the influence of the Apostle Paul. There would have been no rapid expansion of the Christian church in the first century like was seen under the life and ministry of Saul of Tarsus. I mean, look, folks, let's be honest. When you read the book of Acts, you do not get the impression that the rest of the apostles were in love with the idea of taking the gospel to the outer reaches of the Roman world. They weren't. You see this in Acts chapter 10 when Peter goes to the home of Cornelius. Peter has to have a vision to prepare him to share the gospel with the Gentile. And Peter goes into the house and he begins to preach to Cornelius. Cornelius gets saved. Then Peter goes back to Jerusalem. And Luke says in in Acts chapter 11, verse 3, that the other apostles took issue with Peter and said, you went to the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with him. And Peter backs off and he says, listen, here's what happened. He tells them about the vision. Tells them about Cornelius' vision. Tells them about preaching to Cornelius and says, I saw with my own eyes this man is saved. And then Luke says the apostles when they heard this, quieted down and said, well then, I guess God has granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. Hardly passionate excitement about the evangelization of the Gentile world. 
The gospel went to the far reaches of the Roman Empire because of Paul. And he did in 30 years as an apostle what could have taken three centuries to happen at the rate it was going before Paul did it. And he did it all before his death. Without Paul, there would have been no Timothy, no Titus, no Priscilla and Aquila, no Dr. Luke. Without Paul, there would not have been any gospel preached to Nero because it was Paul that did that, took the gospel right into Caesar's palace and proclaimed it to Nero at his trial. That's the Apostle Paul. And listen, his, his influence goes beyond even his own life. October 31st, 1517, a little monk walks up to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nails 95 theses to the door of the church. You know what caused him to do that? Reading Romans chapter 1 and coming to the understanding that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ and not through the Roman church. Without Paul, you'd have no Martin Luther. There would have been no Reformation, and it was the thinking of the Reformation that led to the Industrial Revolution. And it was the theology of the Reformation that sparked the American Revolution. We'd have no Declaration of Independence or or United States of America if it were not for the Reformation of the church in Europe. You'd have no John Calvin, George Whitfield. You would have had no Great Awakening because there would have been no Jonathan Edwards, no Charles Spurgeon, no John Knox. All of these men were molded and shaped by one man. Primarily. Who? Paul the Apostle. And it is the day that changed the whole world when he got saved. And nothing was to ever be the same again because of that one man. Can you fathom that? Countless millions of people have been influenced and affected. And countless millions of lives The course of nations was altered the day that Saul approached Damascus with an extradition order in his hand. And it was such a significant day that Luke records it three times in the book of Acts. Once in Acts chapter 9 where he just gives us sort of a skeletal outline of the events of that day. And then Luke records it twice more in the speeches of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 22 and in Acts chapter 26, where Paul, as he's relating those events, fills in a lot of the details that Luke leaves us uh, a mystery to us for the time being, at least in Acts chapter 9. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at the first 19 verses, and we're going to see four things about Saul and his conversion experience here. Four things. We're going to look at, first of all, Saul's contempt for the saints In verses 1 and 2, Acts chapter 9, Luke tells us, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Let me put this in sort of a chronological perspective for you, so you can understand where this fits in relation to the rest of the events in the book of Acts. This is about A.D. 35, so we're only two years removed from the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord, roughly in the neighborhood of about two years. The events of Acts 6, 7, 8, and 9 seem to flood in upon another. They all seem to be in a very short period of time. Acts chapter 6, Stephen is chosen as a deacon. Shortly after that, he is charged with his blasphemy, quote-unquote, against the temple and Moses and the law. He's arrested. He's tried. Standing at his execution is a young man named Saul. That launches a persecution. The church is scattered. Philip goes to 
to Samaria, then from Samaria out into the desert heading to Gaza. And while Philip is doing that, Saul is on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus. All of these events have piled in upon another. And all of it is surrounding the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. So about A.D. 35, we're only two years into the history of the church when all this takes place. And Luke says that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This is the same Saul we were introduced to back in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was executed and Luke introduces Saul to us by saying they cast their garments, their outer clothes, at the feet of a young man named Saul, indicating by the fact that he was there, he was holding these garments, he was giving hearty approval to the death of Stephen. He was involved in the whole wicked affair. Not just a passing bystander. He was there. He watched it. Saul was likely the one who debated Stephen and was publicly bested by him. Saul was likely the one who found the false witnesses. Saul is likely the one who orchestrated it. He's behind all of this, everything to do with Stephen. And he's there, and when they get ready to stone them, the witnesses get ready to stone Stephen, and they put their coats, they hand them to Saul, and he's standing there, a young man between the ages of 25 and, and 40, probably 33, 35 years old at this time. So he is very similar in age to the Lord Jesus, really. And somebody once, um, I was reading this last week, and somebody said it's, it's possible that Saul of Tarsus had met Jesus Christ. Now, I can't rule that out as a definite possibility. Why is that? Well, they would have been similar to each other in age. Saul, as an Orthodox Pharisee Jew, would have been there for all of the feasts and everything at the temple and they would have converged in Jerusalem. They certainly would have been in Jerusalem at the same period of time. It's very possible that Saul had heard Jesus teach in the temple, had seen Jesus in the temple, and was at least familiar with him and his ministry. But since that period of time, he's taken a a hard turn to being not just ambivalent about Christ, but actually antagonistic toward Christ. So he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It started in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen, And it's interesting to note the wording that Luke uses to describe Saul in his unsaved state. There's two phrases that are really telling. The one is in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, when it says that Saul ravaged the church. That's the word that's used to describe a beast who tears apart a carcass to destroy it. That's the word, like an animal. That's the word that Luke uses to describe Saul, like an animal. And then look at chapter 9, verse 1. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Another animalistic type of term. It's a very vivid term. The air that he breathed was violent hatred. Like a snorting wild animal was Saul of Tarsus in his hatred for Christians and for Christ. It's telling, isn't it? That's the type of man he was. Consumed with his passion and his hatred for Christians For Christ and for Christ's church. Saul left on his way to Damascus. He had started the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. And now Luke says that he had went to the high priest to obtain letters from them for basically an extradition order to round up disciples at Damascus and to bring them back to Jerusalem to punish them there, to imprison them there. And his intention in doing that is certainly to kill them. Listen to Saul's own words as he describes his unsaved condition. Acts chapter 22, Paul says, I persecuted this way to death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, also as the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. 
Acts chapter 26, Paul says, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. That's a reference to Stephen. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, You've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I kept trying to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries and among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Galatians chapter 1, verse 22, Saul says this. After his conversion, he says, I was still unknown to the churches of Judea which were in Christ, but they only kept hearing, He who once persecuted the faith now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, Paul says, I'm the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. That's his own testimony. A ravaging animal. Listen, folks, he didn't just seek to make Christians uncomfortable. He sought to destroy them. His intent was that when he died, there would be no Christians left. He was going to destroy this movement. And if it meant killing them in any way he could, he would do it. If Saul of Tarsus had his way, he would get his hands on every Christian and he would hold the coats at thousands of stonings. He wished to see every Christian lying bludgeoned beneath a pile of stones. And with that intention, he goes to the chief priests and he gets letters. Now, obviously, the persecution in Jerusalem was not enough for Saul He wanted permission to go round them up in other cities. They had been scattered from Jerusalem off into Samaria like Philip was. Some had gone to Damascus. And so Saul goes to the high priest and he asks for letters from the high priest giving him permission to arrest Christians in Damascus and to bring them back to Jerusalem. The high priest had a certain amount of authority even under Roman rule over domestic issues and he could give Saul that authority. And the fact that Saul went to the high priest to get those papers indicates his close association with Caiaphas and Annas. You do not hand over an extradition order with your name signed to the bottom of it to somebody that you don't know and you don't trust. They knew Saul. They worked with Saul. Saul was their chosen instrument to bring suffering and affliction upon Christians. And so they signed the extradition order and they handed it into the hands of the Apostle Paul and off for Damascus he went intending to bring together all of these Christians to bind them, to arrest them, and to bring them back to Jerusalem. Why Damascus? Why not Samaria? There's a big church in Samaria, right? Philip was influential with the Samaritans. Well, what do the Jews have to do with Samaritans? Nothing, right? Saul's not going to Samaria. They're half-Gentiles. They're half-breeds, heretics. Forget them. So he chooses Damascus. Why does he choose Damascus? There's a strategic reason. You know what it is? Damascus was a commercial center. Caravans from all over the world would converge at Damascus, and they would trade and do commerce, do business, and then they would leave. And Saul knew that a successful church at Damascus would mean the end of his persecution. He would have to attack the heart of the beast, because he knew that from Damascus, a successful church could spread that gospel, which he hated, all over the Roman world. 
Because people would be coming in, people would be leaving, they would be taking the gospel with them, and he couldn't have that. So he goes to the heart of the beast to Damascus. That's why Damascus. And he has permission to bind up all of the people of the way. Do you know what he calls it, the way? The way was a phrase that early Christians used to describe themselves, and it likely came from John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And those who believed in Christ belonged to the way, because Christianity was the way of life, the way to eternal life, and, and Jesus called himself the way. So the early Christians referred to themselves as that. We are the way. Not we are the first church of so-and-so, but we're the way. His descendants. That is his contempt for the church. Such violent hatred that you and I can hardly fathom it. Second, I want you to notice his confrontation with the Savior. Beginning in verse 3, Luke tells us, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he heard a voice. Damascus is about 150 miles from Jerusalem. It's about seven days' travel. And Saul is into his seventh day of travel. Verse 7 tells us that he's traveling with other men who are with him. Who are the other men? We don't know that. Likely, when Saul was given his extradition order, his papers with that authority, he was also given a contingent of Roman of, of temple guard who would go with him to arrest the Christians. Saul's not going to walk into Damascus and arrest a couple hundred Christians all by himself and take them back to Jerusalem. He's not Superman. When he was given the extradition order, likely he was giving a, a, a group of guards to go with him to Damascus to bind up Christians and to guard them and bring them back. It's a seven-day journey. And as he is approaching the city, he's outside of Damascus, and Acts 22 says it's about noontime. The Mediterranean sun is high, it is hot, it is bright, but as Damascus is within view, something happens that all of a sudden makes that bright, hot sun pale by comparison. A light flashes around him that is so brilliant, it puts Saul on his face. Now you can look into the bright sun on a clear day for just a couple of minutes, and it'll blind you temporarily. Friends, you can look into the sun, and although you have to close your eyes and it would, it would blind you, take away your sight for a second, you can at least stand afterwards. This light is so bright, it pushes him to the ground. And Saul is eventually blinded by it. But for a moment, he is allowed to see something. You see, this is when Saul saw the light. Literally. And for that moment, he not only saw light, but he saw the glory of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8 says that Saul saw Christ. Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me. What is he talking about? 1 Corinthians 15. The Damascus Road experience. Later, later on, Ananias says to Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road sent me to you. Saul's eyes are opened and he is allowed to see the Son of Man. Now, none of the people who are traveling with Saul are able to see him. The text says that they see the light, but they do not see a person. And later on in Acts, Paul reveals that they hear the voice, but they do not understand what's being said. Although they see light and although they hear sound, they do not see the person of Christ, which is a vision only reserved for, for Saul, and they do not hear the voice of Christ, which is something only Saul could hear and understand. But they see the light and they stand there and they see something supernatural going on. Saul is on his face and he is blinded and he sees the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at the grace in this. Who was the last person to see the Lord Jesus Christ? Stephen. Remember, Stephen said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And his face glowed. 
and Saul was there. And he saw the glow on Stephen's face, and he heard those words. And now Saul is seeing the same person that Stephen saw. Only the brightness and the glory of it is something that everybody around him can see. And he hears the voice. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? How do you answer that question? What do you say to that? Why do you persecute me? All of a sudden he understands that it's not just a group of people that he's been after. It's not just a heretical movement. Suddenly he understands he is guilty of persecuting the Lord of glory. He has been fighting God. He understands now that the Christ that he hates is indeed the Son of God. He understands that it's not just people he's been after, but he has been violently rebelling and persecuting and hating God himself. And notice the connection of the Lord with his people. The Lord Jesus doesn't say to him, Saul, why do you persecute my people? He doesn't say, Saul, why do you persecute the saints or the Christians? What does he say? Saul, why do you persecute me? See, there's no blow that's delivered on earth that is not felt in heaven. Such is the connection between our Lord, the head of the body, and the body. He has suffered with his church. And he confronts Saul. And Saul comes face to face with his violence, his aggression, his hatred, his rebellion, and his persecution. What do you say to the question, why do you persecute me? Saul asks the question, who are you, Lord? I think he knew the answer to that question before he asked it, by the way. I think Saul could deduce from what has happened and what he has been told so far who it is that he's talking to. I think he knows that. But he is about ready to find out that his worst imaginable nightmare is indeed reality. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Notice the repetition of persecuting. Why do you persecute me? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. He's being confronted with his sin. He's being confronted with his rebellion. And the Lord has cornered him and he's not going to let him go. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Saul's worst imaginable nightmare is to find out that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. His worst imaginable nightmare is to find out that the gospel is truth and that the gospel proclaimed by Stephen and by the other Christians was God's truth. And now he's confronted with the reality that his worst imaginable nightmare is reality. And there he stands. Everything has fallen apart for Saul of Tarsus. Do you remember what Gamaliel said? The trial of the apostles, Peter and John, the rest of the apostles. And what did Gamaliel say? Leave this movement alone. If it's of men, it'll fall apart. If it's of God, you can't do anything to stop it. And you may even be found to fight against God. And here is his one-time student, Saul of Tarsus, being found what? To fight against God. How ironic is that? If he had just listened to Gamaliel. But he didn't. And Saul was there to hear Stephen proclaim the word. Saul was there to hear Stephen say, You're just like your fathers, always resisting the will of God and rejecting Him. And that was a condemnation on Saul of Tarsus. And now he's confronted with the reality of his sin 
The light comes on. He understands who he is and what he has been doing. He is lying on his face in the dirt and light that he cannot even stand up in. And he hears the voice of the Son of God saying, You're persecuting me. In Acts chapter 22, Saul says that at this point, he said to him, What do you want me to do, Lord? Acts chapter 22. What do you want me to do, Lord? Look at that transformation. Who are you? Lord, which is how Paul's come to know him now. And then after being confronted with his sin, he just simply says, what do you want me to do? No questions. No compromises. Saul doesn't say, well, you know, if I give up this persecution, it's going to mean a lot of lost income. It's going to mean this and that. And all these things are going to change in my life. Lord, give me a couple weeks to think about whether or not I want to serve you or follow you. He doesn't do that, does he? Instant, unconditional obedience. Lord, what do you want of me? Commission me. You name it, I'll do it. Friends, that is an instant transformation. His hatred has been turned to love. His rejection has been turned to submission. And his scourging of the church is now turned into instant service to the church. Lord, what do you want? You name it, and I'll do it. And the Lord just says to him, go into Damascus, and I'll tell you further what you're going to do. That is his confrontation with the Savior. The hound of heaven, as C.S. Lewis called him, the hound of heaven had cornered this rebellious young man and given him no place to go. And finally he had crushed his will and all of his arrogance, his pride, his self-reliance, all of that has been crushed. And Saul has been rendered a pile of rubble. The friends from the ashes of his life would rise the most noble and useful man of God that the church has ever known. And that happened with his confrontation with the Savior. Third thing I want you to notice is Saul's contrition over his sin. Verse 8. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. He goes to his knees a rebel. He stands a son. The light fades probably just as quickly as it had come on. The voice and the sound is no more. And suddenly everything is as it was just a few moments earlier. The sun is high in the sky. The whole caravan that Saul has been traveling with is still there. They're amazed and they've seen and heard something that they don't even understand what has gone on because they haven't seen Christ. They've just seen the light. They haven't heard the voice and understood it. They just heard the noise. And now Saul stands up and though his eyes are open, he can see nothing. Nothing. And they take him by the hand and they lead him through the gates of Damascus. Friends, what kind of a spectacle was that? To see Saul of Tarsus being led by the hand through the gates of Damascus. And here just moments earlier, he was going to ride or walk triumphantly as the victor over the church, the conqueror over Christians, into the city of Damascus. And now he is so humbled, so destroyed, that they're leading him by the hand. And the text indicates that they knew he was coming because Ananias knew Saul was coming. What must that have looked like? Some Christians may be standing in the crowd and hear Saul being led by the hand. This roaring lion had been turned into a bleeding lamb. He's got nothing. He is as helpless. He is defenseless. He is as weak and meek and humbled as you could possibly be. He can't even walk by himself or find the way. 
total dependency. They lead him by the hand to the, the house of a man named Judas, likely where he had already arranged to stay during his time that he was going to be in Damascus. And he is there three days and three nights, unable to see, and he does not eat and he does not sleep. Or sorry, he does not eat and he does not drink. Why did he not eat and why did he not drink? There's a couple things that would contribute to this. First of all, the physical shock of seeing the light, being blinded and having to be led into that, hearing that voice, all of that would shock an individual. Listen, eating and drinking is the last thing on his mind. You don't have an experience like that and then walk into Damascus and go out to dinner with your friends. It doesn't happen that way. I remember when I trusted Christ as my Savior, I could hardly sleep for a week because all of a sudden my whole life has changed. And that's where Saul is at. In his contrition over his sin, he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink for three days. Why? His whole life has been rearranged. Everything he thought was true, he now understands was false. Everything he thought was false, he now understands is God's truth. The one person he hated more than any other is now his Lord. He sees himself as as totally destroyed and his life is ruined. All of his priorities have been rearranged. And now he is beginning to understand the implications of the Lordship and the Messiahship of Christ. And their far-reaching implications. Suddenly his whole life is meaningless and everything leading up to that day means nothing. It's cut off. It's like it didn't exist for him. And his eyes have been opened and now he's looking at the rest of his life and saying, it's all different than what I had planned. You don't eat and drink and have fun and go about life as usual when something like that happens. When you trust Christ, your life is radically, radically changed. Everything is rearranged. And it's rearranged because Saul said, what do you want me to do, Lord? The Lordship of Christ. He is Lord. He requires our unconditional, instant, and unquestioning obedience. And Saul understood that. And he knew that suddenly his life was not going to be the same. He didn't eat. He didn't drink for three days. And listen, there's a question that he would have been asking himself, and it's this. Will I ever be accepted among these people that I have caused so much suffering? Will they ever trust me? Will they ever love me? Will they ever know me? Could God use somebody, the chief of sinners, like I? That's, those are the things that would be running through his mind. As all of a sudden he understands the anguish that he has caused, not only his new Lord, but also all of his people. So the Lord brings the answer to that, which is Ananias. And the fourth thing I want you to notice is his connection with the saints. We've looked at his contempt for the saints, his confrontation with the Savior, his contrition over his sin. Fourth, you notice his connection with the saints. Beginning in verse 10, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And just in case you're wondering, this is different than the Ananias that was married to Sapphira. We're all on that same page, right? This is a different Ananias, obviously. A disciple named Ananias, verse 10, And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Go up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hand on him so that he might regain his sight. During those three days, Saul was praying. What else are you going to do? He's so caught up in the new life and the ramifications of what has happened to him. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He spends that time praying. And the Lord shows to us that while he was praying, the 
uh, he had a vision in which a man named Ananias came in and laid his hands on him and he would regain his sight. Maybe Saul was praying that he would get his sight back. Maybe he was praying that in order to be more useful, he could see again. And the answer to Saul's prayer and his prayer time is this vision in which Ananias, a man named Ananias that Saul has never met, comes to him and lays his hand on him. And the Lord appears to Ananias and gives him a vision. And he says, Saul's waiting for you. Go to the street straight. Go to the house of Judas. There's a man there from Tarsus named Saul. Huh? Saul of Tarsus? The Saul of Tarsus? He said, Ananias got the direction from the Lord. No problem, right? Wrong. This is a suicide mission. Ananias says, Lord... I've heard about this guy. I've heard about all the pain that he's caused to your saints in Jerusalem. And we know, as if he has to tell the Lord this, he has authority from the chief priests to come here and to bind all who call on your name. And he's a little reluctant. Rightly so, because Ananias hasn't been told what's gone on with Saul, has he? What has the Lord said to him? He's seen a vision, he's praying, he wants, you're gonna go lay your hands on him and he's gonna regain his sight. Ananias hasn't been told what's happened on the Damascus road. He hasn't been told any of that. And he's a little reluctant. We say we should take comfort in the fact that Saul of Tarsus was at least praying. Not really. Saul always prayed. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious zealot. Prayer was part of his life. So Ananias is reluctant, and understandably so. But the Lord says to him, go. And then he gives him three very vital pieces of information. He's a chosen vessel of mine. A chosen, not in the sense of election, before the foundation of the world, although Saul, as with all the saints, are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's not this kind of choosing. It's the choosing of a calling, that type of choosing that Ananias, uh, that the Lord is speaking of. He is called, he is chosen because he's a vessel of mine. He's going to be my instrument. And the second thing he reveals to him, not only that he is his chosen vessel, but also that he is going to bear my name before Gentiles, before kings, and before the children of Israel. So the Lord gives Ananias an understanding. This man is going to bear my name. He's my vessel. I've chosen him. And he's going to bear my name before these three different groups. The kings. That's the most interesting one. Because Saul of Tarsus preached to Festus, Felix, Agrippa, and eventually to Nero. And the Lord says, that's what I've chosen him for. He's going to bear my name. He's my chosen vessel. He's going to have a ministry to Jews, Gentiles, and kings. And third, I'm going to show him how much he'll suffer for my name's sake. Man, that's powerful. Here he had caused all of this suffering. And the Lord says, I'm going to show him suffering. You want to see suffering, friends? Second Corinthians chapter 11. That's suffering. Stonings, beatings, shipwreckings, rejection. And you're going to see how much he suffers even in this chapter. Acts chapter 9 later on. The Lord says, I'll show him how much he's going to suffer for me. That's enough for Ananias. He follows the direction. He goes to the street named Straight. He finds the house of Judas. He walks in. There is Saul sitting, laying, standing. I don't know. He can't see. It's been three days since the Damascus Road experience. And Saul has been there. He's been praying. And Ananias walks in and he lays hands on the Apostle Paul, on Saul of Tarsus. And he says, Brother Saul. Friends, that's grace. Those are two words that no Christian would have ever thought they would hear or speak. Brother Saul. I can't even imagine the difficulty with which those words would have rolled off the tongue of Ananias. But they were music to Saul's ears. 
Here he had likely been wondering, how can these people possibly forgive me or love me or ever respect me or, or have any kindness shown to me whatsoever? He would have felt like a black sheep. He would have felt like the least of all the saints, the least of the apostles, the most, the most vile and wicked person to ever be redeemed. Brother Saul. And the laying on of his hands did three things. First, it identified Ananias with Saul. You see, in Acts chapter 22, Paul says that Ananias was respected by all the Jews who dwelt in Damascus. He was a man of reputation, a man of character. People knew him. Likely, Ananias was a, was a spiritual leader in the church at Damascus, had some sort of a role like that. And he has come in, and he's just the mouthpiece by which Saul is commissioned. And he comes in and he lays hands on Saul of Tarsus and says, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road to Damascus has sent me here that you might regain your sight. And in his laying on of his hands on Saul of Tarsus, he has identified Saul as his brother, as a believer, and he has identified Saul with the church and the church with Saul. So there's a reaching out and an identification that takes place. Second, the laying on of hands was the vehicle by which Saul was healed. Because Luke says in Acts chapter 9 that immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. Some sort of dandruff, dry, scaly thing fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And third, through the laying on of the hands of Ananias, the Apostle Paul was filled with the Spirit of God for his role in ministry. Now there's more that goes on here than what Acts 9 tells us. In Acts 22, Paul says that Ananias came to me and standing near to me, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment I looked up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. See, there was an apostolic commissioning that took place at this moment between Ananias and Saul. Ananias was the mouthpiece and he came to Saul and Saul was commissioned and given his, his commission of the Lord through the mouth of Ananias who said, you're going to, the Lord has appeared to you. He has appointed you to hear his voice. It's an apostolic commissioning. And this is why Paul over and over in his epistles makes the argument that he was an apostle in his own right. He was not dependent on the other apostles for his authority or his ministry or his position. He was commissioned directly by Christ through Ananias. That's what happens here. Saul gets up. He is publicly and visibly identified with the church that he had once sought to destroy through baptism. He is baptized. And then he takes food and he eats and he's strengthened. He had once hated Christ. Now he is identified publicly with Christ in believer's baptism. He had once sought to destroy the church. Now he is identified with the church as one of their own because he has been baptized. And he eats and he's strengthened. Now, folks, are you ever going to have an experience like this? Are you ever going to see a bright light like that, fall to your face, be blinded, and hear the voice of God from heaven? No. But there's three things in this text which are very similar to our experience with Christ. Let me point them out. The first one is that without Christ, we're all rebels. The Apostle Paul was a rebellious, God-hating sinner. Without Christ, you're the same thing. I hate to break that to you, but it's true. Now, you may say, I've never chased Christians or persecuted Christians or gone after Christians or even tried to round any of them up and have them killed. That might be true. The direction and the intention of your rebellion might be different, but the results are the same. You're a child of wrath, separated from God, in need of a Savior. All of us are in that boat. 
All of us are just like Saul, separate from God in need of a Savior. The second thing that's similar with his experience and our experience is the remedy for our situation. That is to say that all of us come to Christ and have that problem solved with a penitent, humble faith and turning to God in Christ. Being reconciled to God by the blood of His Son, we come to Him humble, acknowledging our position as a sinner, and trusting in Him for salvation, which is what Saul did. He was saved the same way you and I are saved, by believing in Christ for salvation. And the third similarity is this, the results of our our transformation. What do you want me to do, Lord? That's it. What do you want me to do? You name it, and I'll do it, whatever it is. No questions. And that, my friend, from day one was the story of the Apostle Paul. You say, how is it that he could be so influential? How is it that he could have such an impact? How is it that his life could affect so many millions? You know what it was? He was completely, totally surrendered to the Lord. And when he was transformed, he just simply said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I'll do it. And the persecutor of the church becomes the greatest preacher of the faith. He who was once antagonistic now becomes an apostle. What a transformation. Friends, that grace is an example to you and I. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, he says, For this reason I found mercy. Listen, for this reason I found mercy. So that in me, as the chief of sinners... Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for all those who will believe on Him for eternal life. He's an example. An example of what? An example of loving, sovereign, divine grace that would change the greatest of sinners into the greatest of saints. And you and I can look at it and say, if God can do that in Saul of Tarsus, there is nobody, nobody beyond the reach of His grace. There is nobody whose sin is too great. To be changed by the grace of God. That's all of our story. So all of us can say with Saul of Tarsus, now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your sovereign, loving grace. Thank you that you have the power and the will to change us from sinners to saints. And thank you, Father, that you gave your Son and displayed that grace on the cross and that you display that grace in the salvation of sinners each and every day. We do thank you, Father, that you hounded us, that you pursued us, that you loved us and sent your Son for us. And for that grace, we are thankful. I pray, Father, that you would help each one of us and give us the grace to say to you, Lord, what do you want? You name it, I'll do it and to surrender to you because you have transformed our lives. Thank you for the grace that not only saves, but empowers us to serve. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name, who made it all possible. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.